Today we're going to get back into John's Gospel. Now, if you remember, the first four books of the New Testament, the second half of your Bible, are called the Gospels. Those are the eyewitness accounts by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so we've just begun a study of John's account of who is this Jesus. Last week we saw in the beginning of John chapter 1 that John describes Jesus as the Word of God, God's most clear revelation of himself. He also mentioned that Jesus is the light of the world. And so those are themes that are going to continue in John's Gospel. Now, did you know that you can actually open this book on other days besides Sunday? I don't know if you knew that. In fact, I would strongly urge you and encourage you to do so even if you feel like it's cheating and like you know what's coming next because you've read ahead and you know what's, what's to come, that's okay. That's, that's, it's an open book test every Sunday morning. And so I would encourage you in the next couple of months as an individual, as a family, parents with children, a small group, as friends within the body of Christ, go through John's gospel together. Because that's where that iron sharpening iron can really take place when you're talking to somebody else uh, within the body of Christ, a brother or sister in Christ, and you're saying, hey, did you read, what about this? I got a real question about the end of John chapter 1. What did you think of this verse? When John says Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the earth, what, what does that even mean? And you have those conversations and you begin to grow in your faith and share that with other believers. So I'd really encourage you, you know, to be reading through John's Gospel. You could probably read it through once a week and really own this and, and internalize it. Maybe take some three-by-five cards and write some of those key verses that God is speaking to you. Carry them around. Memorize them. Hide God's Word in your heart as, as a way of battling sin, as a way of keeping your eyes fixed on His kingdom. So today we're going to unpack the second part of John chapter 1. The prologue took us up through verse 18 where we heard John laying out some themes that are going to be continued on throughout uh, the gospel of John. Now we meet this guy named John the Baptist. He's not the guy that wrote the gospel of John, but this is a guy named John, and you could say John the Baptist or John the Baptizer because it's really his occupation. He's the guy that baptizes people. And so we'll find out some more about that. But let's read together here in verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? You know, and we're going to find out some more as we read this. There's some question as to why is this guy out baptizing Jewish people in the Jordan River? What, what's going on there? Why is he baptizing Jewish people? They didn't really have a category for that. There's a connection uh, to verse 25 when they, they continue to question him and there's a dialogue happening. Later they ask him, well then why are you baptizing? Who, who are you and why are you baptizing? That's really motivating these priests and Levites to come out to John, sent by the Pharisees to ask these questions. Who are you and why are you baptizing? So, now, now, in Maybe we're reading this today. Well, we, we know a little bit more about baptism today. In fact, there's still questions, debates, dialogue about baptism today. Some churches baptize babies. Our church baptizes believers, so we feel that you need to be uh, at least of an age cognitively aware to understand that you have received that gift of salvation through Jesus. 
And so that's a, we do believer's baptism here at the Way Church. Then people debate, you know, do you, do you sprinkle or immerse? Do you baptize in the name of Jesus only or in the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? How, and so there's, Christians like to argue about things like this, right? So in the, in the first century, well, now you've got a, a Jewish man out at the river in, in Israel, in the nation of Israel, baptizing Jewish people. Who are you, John? Why are you doing this? And there really wasn't any antagonism because they were familiar with the idea of baptism. Baptism was used within Judaism to mark someone who had moved from non-Judaism to Judaism. So someone who uh, was a proselyte of Judaism, someone who had been a Gentile and was now becoming a Jew, baptism would be that initiation into Judaism. It would be that rite of passage to say, I'm washing and cleansing myself from that past way of life and now entering into this new way of worshiping the one true creator God. But in that form of baptism, it was something that an individual would do for themselves. They would baptize themselves. So a proselyte of Judaism would baptize him or herself. The, in the Essene community in Qumran, they would do daily baptism. They had a verse from Ezekiel that they thought supported that. So it would be a daily consecration and surrender to God. So even within Judaism, there were examples of people baptizing themselves as kind of a reminder of that initiation that's ongoing. But to have someone baptizing Jewish people other than oneself was a bit unusual. Now they did have some idea that this would be an end times marker. This would signal that the day of the Lord had arrived when you started to have this sort of baptism that John was practicing. So that's at the heart of why they're coming out. They're saying, John, are you one of these end times figures that we've been looking forward to as we're reading our Old Testament? And they begin to ask specific questions along that line. Right away when when they ask John, who are you? His response, it says in verse 20, he emphatically says, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they're going to go on to probe a little bit more deeply and say, are you some of these important Old Testament characters that would be fitting with this end time sort of baptism that we think you may be doing out here at the Jordan River? Are you a messianic figure are you a kingly figure are you a priestly figure are you a prophet of god that's ushering in the day of the lord is that why you're out here baptizing who are you and so he begins you know this is his job right so john the baptist came to witness testify confess that jesus is the light of the world that jesus is the lamb of god that there is salvation in no other name that there's no way to see the Father except by seeing the Son. This was his job, right? He's, he's the one who proclaims and announces the one who is greater than he, the one whose sandals he's not even worthy to untie, the one who came after him and yet ranks above him because he was before him, the one who was present before the world was even spoken into existence. So there may have been a bit of temptation as these important people from Jerusalem are being sent out by the Pharisees, these priests and Levites coming to him, and there's an opportunity to kind of do some, uh, you know, puffing up himself. Go, yeah, I am a pretty important end times character here. 
You know, I, I am the light, but John doesn't take that path. He continues his positive confession that Jesus is the one way. So even when he denies his own messianic status, he's still in a positive way affirming that Jesus is the way. He's pointing the way to God. I think there's a lesson here for us. You know, we had a, we had a worship team, a talented team of musicians up here on stage using the gifts that God gave to them, really building up the church this morning, right? Uh, glorifying God today in this place. What would happen if they started to lose sight of, of this principle that we're seeing in John's gospel here and in John the Baptist's behavior, and they started to think that they're the light, right? That, that this is a rock concert to bring glory to them. And the rest of us are not actually worshiping God, but we're worshiping these talented musicians up on stage. And, you know, maybe they're getting visions of some concert that they've attended recently. That, that would be a problem, right, in the house of God. What if you had a preacher who started to think that all those pats on the back after the sermon was what it's all about, right? Oh, man, thank man, you're such a good orator. Here, have some glory. And a preacher starts enjoying that and taking glory for him or herself. Well, that's a problem. Our real job is to be more like a mirror tilted at 45 degrees as God's children. That when someone looks at us, all they see is a reflection of the king of light and glory and see his radiance shining forth. Almost like you know, the worship team, they're saying, hey, look at me, look at me, now look at him. And step out of the way and bring glory to him. That was John's mission. And so when the priests and Levites came out and they started to say, who are you? The first thing he said is, I am not the Christ. That word Christ is the Greek word that in the Old Testament is Messiah. And it means anointed. This is what you do. Like, you know, we think of medieval times. If you're going to knight someone, you would use a sword and tap them on both shoulders probably. Well, in the, in the biblical sense, this is a kingly reference. You use oil to designate the king. So in the Old Testament, Messiah is, is a word that has to do with anointing, putting oil on someone who is kingly. And here in the New Testament, Christ, same thing. It's not Jesus' last name. You could take the word Christ out and put king in there instead. So Jesus the king. And so uh, John is saying, I'm not a kingly figure. So they go a little bit deeper. What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Now again, there, there's expectation here in their questioning from the Old Testament. If you read the very end of the Old Testament, the last two verses of the book of Malachi, there is a prophecy about Elijah coming. I'll just quote it for you here. Malachi 4, verse 5, it says, I will send you, Elijah the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord. So they're saying, you know, is this the great and awesome day of the Lord? And are you the Elijah that we've been looking for? Because, dude, you look like Elijah. John the Baptist is a crazy-looking guy. You know, we find out more about him in the other gospel accounts. He's out in the wilderness. He's like... You know, he's, got, he's this you know, burly-looking, manly guy with a lot of facial hair and wearing, wearing garments that are unusual, eating 
honey and locusts living off the land. It's like a serious elk hunter out in the bush, right? And they're like, Guy, you know, you are definitely not from Jerusalem. You look kind of like Elijah. Are you the person that was prophesied by God at the end of the book of Malachi? Are you ushering in the end times? No. Well, then they're thinking further back in their Old Testament knowledge. They're going back to the book of Deuteronomy where God comes to Moses. And here's what God says to Moses in Deuteronomy 18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Are you the prophet that God promised would be a prophet like Moses all the way back in Deuteronomy 18? No, not him either. All right, we're out of ideas that if you're not the Messiah, you're not the, the prophet Elijah who was even more powerful than the priests of Baal. Remember, he's the guy that called down fire the day uh, on Mount Carmel when there was this standoff with the, the prophets of Baal. So you're not a prophet that's more powerful than priests. You're not a king. You're not the prophet that was prophesied in, in the book of Deuteronomy. Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And so he quotes from Isaiah 40 and says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. As you're reading your New Testament, whenever you have a direct quotation from the Old Testament, it's good to go back and read it in context because you know, we assume we know what this means, but we don't bring all of the meaning forward because we're probably not like we haven't probably memorized that passage from Isaiah 40. So let's go back and read a little bit of Isaiah 40 here to get the context. What is John saying in this proclamation of who he really is? So I, this is Isaiah 40 beginning in verse 1. It's, he's, it says this: Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." And he's bringing all that meaning into his statement of who he is and what his role is. He's the one that's to fulfill what you know, was spoken there in Isaiah 40. Really, Isaiah 40 is, a, is an encapsulation of the hopes, the Jewish hopes of salvation. I don't know what your hope is when you think of salvation. Uh, maybe it's that you get to go to heaven. And that's a big part of it. But hopefully it's a little bigger than that. That it's not just kind of, well, I just, I'll muddle through 
85 years here, 90 years, however many years God gives me, and I'm hoping for that salvation when I just get to go to heaven. Um, it's bigger than that. And so for the, for the Jews, their idea of salvation, if you think of the times that they were in exile, and it happened repeatedly throughout their history. So you had, you know, all the way back to the exile in Egypt, 430 years as slaves, and then God leads them out to the land of promise. And there's a good time in their history where they're now in the promised land. There's worship of the one true creator God in Jerusalem. Eventually there's, there's a, a, a Davidic king on the throne, David and his descendants. There's worship of God. There's the covenant relationship is firmly secure between God and his people. They're living in that land of promise. But then there's another exile. The northern tribes are carried off to Assyria. The southern tribes are carried off to Babylon. And there's a break in their expectations. Why are they dragged off by these pagan foreign lands? Because of their sin. And so with all of, if you think of the turmoil and the problems of their reality, you can kind of guess what their hope of salvation is. So really four things. Four things in the Jewish idea of what is salvation. Number one, it's the return of God's people. Number two, it's the return of a Davidic king. Number three, it's the return of God to Jerusalem. And number four, it's the restoration of God's promises, his covenant with his people. So if you are a slave in Babylon and you serve the one true creator, God, maker of heaven and earth, and now you're living under foreign oppression, your hope is that God will relent from the punishment and judgment he's brought upon you and your fellow countrymen because of your sin. So forgiveness of sin is really what the return of God's people means. That the past sins of prostituting yourselves to false idols, as you have repented and turned from that wickedness and now you're worshiping God as he is, that God will forgive your sin and allow you to return to that land that he gave you to start with. Number two, the, the promise of a Davidic king. This was part of God's covenant with King David in 2 Samuel. That, that a, a king from your line will always be on the throne of Israel. So there's the hope that, okay, once God's people return, now we need one of God's kings back in charge, not you know, the foreign king who comes and, and levies a heavy tax during harvest season. And forces us to pay tribute to Babylon or Persia or Assyria. But that we'll have our king back in Jerusalem where he belongs, in the city of David. Number three, that God will be back here because we used to have a temple where God's glory dwelt. And there was the Holy of Holies, that inner sanctuary. And our God reigned here and we worshipped him freely and without restriction. Now we're in Babylon. And, and, and all we have is memories of the smoke rising in the rubble there in Jerusalem. And we know the temple's been destroyed. We long for the day when we can worship our God freely in the city that he gave us with the king, the right kind of king who points us to him sitting on the throne. Because that's when God's full glory will be present with his people. And all his promises will be fulfilled in that covenant relationship where God requires some things of us, but we do it with joy because of what he promises us. We want that day back. 
And John is coming and he's saying, I'm the bringer of good news. Did you read Isaiah 40? Because really all of that return from exile and forgiveness of sin is there in Isaiah 40. And there's the hope and the expectation that one day, once again, God will forgive the sins of his people. We will be free to worship him as he is. He'll give us godly leaders that will lead us in worshiping him. All of his promises will be fulfilled. And yet the reality at the time of John's gospel and Jesus stepping into the scene is that Rome is occupying Jerusalem. There's not a Davidic king. And there's a need once again for God's people to be led from exile. Except this time, it's bigger than they could imagine. It's not just an exile from Rome. It's an exile from sin. It's not just an exile to reestablishing their national identity. It's a journey to all the world worshiping God as he is as they get a glimpse of who Jesus is. And so, John is coming with that prophetic voice to announce the good news that Jesus is here. There's freedom from sin is possible. Return from exile is happening. Get ready, get excited. And so, let's finish out this this section here, verse 24. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the straps of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. And he's he's letting them know That just as we read in Isaiah 40, where it said, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. That glory is here. He's already walking among you. He's so glorious that I can't even touch his sandal. And so no, I'm not the Christ. No, I'm not Elijah. No, I'm not the prophet. But I'm going to tip that mirror at an angle so you can see him and give him all the glory and listen to his prophetic words. And enter into God's presence through his priestly ministry. The high priest said allows us to come boldly to the throne of grace. Exile is ending. Salvation is coming. God's glory is revealed. And there's good news. Is this still good news for us today in the 21st century? I sure hope so. Because our world sure needs it. Friday, during Juma prayer at two mosques in New Zealand... Some gunmen entered these mosques and killed 49 people. You know, in the name of of, uh, white supremacy, maybe in the name of religion, the most horrific uh, murder uh, toll in New Zealand's history. That just happened two days ago. I hope that your heart is grieved when you read a news story like that, when you hear it, to think of the condition of our world and, and our, our book, our guide from, from our Lord on how we're to live tells us this in Romans 12. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And there is a powerful weapon we have. It's called good. It's, some, it's called righteousness. It's something that God allows us to wield and to use to defeat evil. 
And it's not what was used in New Zealand on that day. And so in a world where there's pain and there's hurt and there's divide over religion and race and gender and ethnicity and national identity and every other way that you could slice and dice a human, God calls us to be carrying on the work and the ministry of John the Baptist, to be leveling the the terrain and making a straight path so that God's glory can be revealed through Jesus to point away to him. Now John's language gets even maybe more extreme than what we've heard from him to this point. So the next day, verse 29, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What's your first impression of that when you hear him announcing Jesus as the Lamb of God? Does anyone in the room have a lamb at your house? Okay. Have any of you ever eaten a gyro? Okay. <laughs> Do any of you have a wool sweater on right now? Okay. Uh, you know, we're, we're a bit disconnected from this pastoral culture where they were used to shepherds and sheep, right? We're, we're a bit removed from the Old Testament sacrificial system where lambs were involved in that process as well. Maybe when you hear the Lamb of God, you think of a, a, an affectionate term that some of you may use with your, your children or uh, that pet name that you might have for that special someone, you know. Oh, my little lamb. I don't know. I, I've never called Heidi that. <laughs> I need to work that one in. Right? I don't think that's what John's getting at here. Okay? So, so some of you have read your Old Testament a time or two. Um, when he says the Lamb of God, what, what imagery from the Old Testament does that bring to mind? A sacrifice, yeah? Any stories in particular? Abraham, so in Genesis 22, when he takes his son Isaac up to the mountain that God said, you know, take your son, your only son, the son you love, and take him to the mountain that I will show you and there offer him as a sacrifice to me. Actually, it was a ram in that case, but you think of stuff like that where, where there is a, a, a sacrificial animal that God provides in place of that son. But yeah, definitely Genesis 22, I think of that. What's that? Innocence. Okay, yeah, because the lamb is able to be offered as a sacrifice because the lamb hasn't sinned. There's also, uh, in the Old Testament, there was the scapegoat that you would put all your sins on this goat and then release it into the wilderness and your sins would kind of go walking away now on this guilty animal. But, but, you know, John doesn't say the goat of God who takes away the sins of the earth. Um, You know, in addition to innocence, another characteristic of sacrificial animals was perfection, right? So you wouldn't go through your flock and pick out a lame, blemished animal and kind of like, I, do we really want this one in the fly? Let's, let's just give this one to God. And you would pick the best specimen of your entire flock and say, this is the one I'm going to give in worship. This is the one I'm going to sacrifice. So all of that language, I mean, this is a very unusual way to introduce a person. And for John's audience, it struck them differently than it does to us today. We've probably read this verse too many times to have any shock effect now. But, but please read it with new eyes. What does this mean when this important person that 
the Pharisees sent priests and Levites out to find out, who are you? Are you this end times, eschatological, end of the earth figure, you know, apocalyptic dude who's out there eating weird food, wearing weird clothes, not cutting your hair enough, and you're baptizing Jewish people? Does this mean the end of time has come? Is that why you're here? And then he points to someone in the crowd and says, that guy is the pure, innocent, sacrificial animal whose blood will save not just the Jews, but the whole world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For them, this would have been a very shocking statement. They would have had some shock effect. You know, we had some meteorologists who used some shocking language this week, right? They came up with this thing, the bomb cyclone, right? I just, I get a kick out of meteorologists. I, I know it's a real thing. But somebody at some point made up that phrase, right? Because, I mean, how fun is it to be like in section C of the newspaper, right? I mean, once in a while when it's your moment to shine, make up a phrase like bomb cyclone and, and everybody will talk about it all week, right? It's your, it's your moment of glory, that's the kind of effect Lamb of God would have on everyone present. Lamb of God, what, what is he talking about? What does this even mean? And this is how he introduces Jesus, bringing in all of that imagery that we've scratched the surface of here this morning as Old Testament readers. The Passover lamb, what about, what about that back in, uh, back in the book of Exodus as God's people were led out of slavery, that last of the ten plagues poured out on Egypt as, as the firstborn of each home died that night as God's angel visited Egypt, except for the homes that had the blood of a lamb painted over the, the doorpost, right? What about the suffering servant in Isaiah 53? Or that idea of a sacrifice whose blood would make atonement for sin. That's a very strange way to introduce a person. And yet this is John's mission and his calling to point to Jesus and say, pay attention, look to him. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him. But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. You know, we don't have an account of Jesus' baptism here in John's Gospel. You can read that in the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But here we know that it's already happened at some point prior to what we're reading here in, in John chapter 1, verse 31. In the other accounts, in the synoptic Gospels, those three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that kind of parallel each other a little bit more closely in the way that these eyewitness accounts are portrayed, uh, in those cases, Jesus is the one who saw the Spirit of God descend. And it's almost visionary language where you know it's Jesus looking into heaven, the realm that God occupies. And, and he's seeing the Spirit descending like a dove. I believe in, there's, there's differences, yet go back and verify this, of who hears the voice saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. 
But here in John, John is saying, I saw the Spirit descend like a dove. And it brings it into the realm of not just visionary language, but reality that John himself was confirmed in his calling to point the way to Jesus by seeing God's Holy Spirit descend like a a dove onto Jesus. And you've got that whole triune picture of God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all present at once. And the Holy Spirit remained on him. Now this is different from most of the Old Testament outpourings of God's Spirit. If you go back and do a study in your Old Testament, you look at how how does God's Holy Spirit show up in the Old Testament? A lot of times it's for one day, one episode. You know, the Holy Spirit will come upon someone and they will prophesy. They'll bring a message from God in that moment. But not now. The, The Holy Spirit remained on Jesus. And this is the New Testament way that God's Spirit works, including today. So the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus, remained upon him, and John was a witness of this. And now he's testifying and telling other people about what he has seen and observed. Verse 33, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. What have we already observed about baptism? This is a, an initiation. It's a marker of a proselyte uh, to a new religion like Judaism, moving from being a Gentile to being a Jew. It's that first step. And John's bringing a message that applies to us as well. He's saying, hey, the message that I got directly from the boss who sent me to testify of his son, is that there's a new baptism coming. That Jesus is bringing a new baptism, a baptism in the Holy Spirit. That those who had not been filled with the Spirit of God will now have the Spirit come upon them and remain upon them. And they're going to be doing the same kind of ministry that Jesus did when he was initiated into this public ministry. So pay attention. And he says, I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. A a few key things here in this passage that we've looked at. Number one, the Lamb of God does not just take away the sin of Israel. The Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. And we saw back in, in Isaiah 40 a lot of that imagery being brought forth into this chapter here that when God's Spirit comes, there's going to be a a setting things straight, righting the wrongs. That theme is developed elsewhere in the book of Isaiah. When you look at what happens when, when the Spirit of God comes and that expectation, in Isaiah 11, it says this, the Spirit of the Lord, well, it says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. That would be a a, a descendant of David, right? And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Why are these 
why are these passages from Isaiah important? Well, this relates to us. Those who are initiated in Christ are baptized in his Holy Spirit and the Old Testament promises that are true of Jesus as he's empowered by the Holy Spirit are also true of us. So listen to what happens when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, according to Isaiah 11. The Holy Spirit shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Then in Isaiah 42, verse 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. That's a function of someone who is spirit-filled. Not only to have wisdom and understanding, counsel, might, knowledge and fear of the Lord, but also to bring forth justice to the nations. And then in Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. This was, in Luke's gospel, this was the scroll that Jesus opened up on his first sermon. He was a lot more concise than me. He just read the text and then rolled it up and said, this scripture has been fulfilled today in your presence. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> these, are, these are the things that happen when, when God's Spirit baptizes someone in that initiating way, that first step, that identification as a Spirit-filled person. And my question for you is this, is God's Spirit upon you? If it is, listen to all those exciting things that you get to be a part of. This is Jesus' ministry to proclaim good news to the poor, to bring forth justice to the nations, to walk in wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and the knowledge and fear of the Lord. These are really good things. If you're not filled with God's Spirit and being filled with God's Spirit, you are missing out on all these good promises. There were people in the book of Acts that, you know, had not been filled with God's Spirit. You know, have you been baptized? I was baptized with John's baptism. You need to know about Jesus. John was just pointing the way to Jesus. And once you get a hold of that, you get the Spirit of God not just touching you one day, but resting upon you and changing your life in a way that Acts 1.8 says will empower you to be a witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the way to the end of the earth. Okay, Empowered to be a witness, that's not just verbal, it is verbal. But it's all the good stuff that was prophesied in Isaiah as well. And John is saying, the one who comes after me will baptize not just with water, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. If you know Jesus, then you know that baptism of the Holy Spirit that changes you and revolutionizes you and gives you a heart for the poor and justice for the nations and gives you wisdom and counsel and might. Man, there's some good news in what John is saying. This Lamb of God, He takes away sin. You're not defined anymore by that 
action that brought you to that place of exile and separation from God and punishment because God has fully dealt with that through his perfect lamb. And you're free to go. And you're empowered to go because his spirit has baptized you and empowered you to go out and to be sent. Salvation is bigger than just that ticket to heaven, right? It's your sins forgiven. It's the ability to walk in a way that glorifies God in all that power and might and knowledge and understanding that we read about in Isaiah. And so what happens as this message starts to get whole? Well, we get a couple of examples here at the end of John 1. Some specific people that are starting to taste and see who is this Lamb of God. And so we'll look quickly at, you know, your Bible probably has the heading, Jesus Calls the First Disciples. But just, these are just a couple of knuckleheads in the first century who saw Jesus as he is. And man, they don't, they don't get it a lot of times. But there's something exciting that begins to happen in their lives. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this. And they said, See you later, John. And they followed Jesus. And that, that takes some it takes some humility and some self-confidence to say, guys, you know, I know you've been following me, but my job in your life is is over. Because really I came to point the way to Jesus, and there he is. So go go follow him. And and that, you know, that's the last we hear from John in this chapter. He he pops up again in chapter three and later. But here, you know, they just walk away from John and they turn and follow Jesus, and he's probably happy with that. That's exactly what his mission was. He's just a 45-degree angle mirror, not trying to bring glory to himself or attract followers to himself, just saying, look to the one who is glorious, and when he comes, follow him with all that you are. And so they turned and followed Jesus, and Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? What are you looking for? Why are you following me? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? They didn't really even directly answer his question. But really, they're, they're kind of, in a way, saying, uh, we don't really know what we're seeking, but we want to follow you. Where are you going? And he said to them, come and you will see. And there's a lot of progressive, developmental, growing language right here in this passage, right? It's not, well, well gentlemen, now we need to sit down and, and let me hear you fully articulate what are you seeking. Do you theologically have this figured out, guys? And they just say, we just want to follow you. And there's not a, you have definitely arrived. As I'm evaluating your doctrinal statement, I can affirm that you are now eligible and qualified to follow me. You have a seminary degree. Congratulations. Come on along. Jesus is okay with this process. Come and follow me and you will see. And so if you don't have it all figured out yet, but you're excited about following this one who is the glory of God, the Lamb of God, the Word of God, 
and growing in knowledge of him and seeing where he goes, seeing where he stays, then you're in good company. Those are the people that he called. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. What did they do next? One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was a guy named Andrew. He had a brother named Simon. The first thing he did, verse 41, he found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, the anointed one, the king. And there, and there we have it here. Now both the Hebrew and the Greek word right there in your Bible. We have found the Messiah, in parentheses, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. That was his first impulse. Is this guy even a Christian yet? Is Andrew? Can, can you even be considered a Christian on day one of following Jesus? Absolutely. And what do you do on day one of following Jesus when you don't have it all figured out and Jesus asks you a direct question? What are you looking for? You don't even have a good answer other than I just want to be with you. And his answer to you is that's, that's enough. What's your, what, what do you do on day two? Go and get somebody else and bring them along. You don't have to wait to be you know, ordained, licensed, commissioned, go through 10 weeks of adult Bible study. Just go get your brother who needs to hear the good news that the king is here and say, I don't have it all figured out yet either, but I am excited. Come follow me. Come follow him. And so he brought Simon to Jesus and Jesus looked at him and said, So, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter, the rock. And Jesus takes this brother and he gives him a new identity, a new name on day one. Man, things go viral when you do it this way. If on day one, you're already out spreading the good news, hey, I, you, I've got something that you need to have. I've, got, I've met someone that you need to know. That's when this thing goes viral. When we slow it all down and bog it down and process bureaucracy, man, it, it's, it's hard to get God's kingdom advancing, right? But what if, you know, when you're out digging through the, the, the residue from the bomb cyclone out in your cul-de-sac and, and all your neighbors are out there and you start pushing cars, you just say, hey, do you know the good news of the King Jesus and they're like, what are you talking about? Well, just, I don't, I don't totally know yet, but come follow me. And you see God, through Jesus, giving a new identity and a new name to that neighbor who's now called a son of God, a daughter of the king. And it begins to ripple out and affect families and neighborhoods and cultures. And it didn't stop there. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? 
I mean, this guy is, uh, we were at the conference this last weekend in, at Mission Hills. One of the breakouts was on what they call the nuns. And I'm not talking about the ladies wearing the, the habits at the, at the convent. N-O-N-E, none. The ones who, when you get the survey, uh, the, the demographic information, they check the box, no religious affiliation. And that's a growing demographic in our country. And so the workshop was about how do we minister to people who don't check the box of Protestant, Evangelical, Catholic, Muslim, not even agnostic or atheist, but they check the no religious affiliation box. And, and the, the stats for the state of Colorado, 29% of people check either atheist, agnostic, or none. So of your neighbors, that's one out of three, that's the bo- those are the boxes that they're checking. Nathaniel sounds like a guy who is one of these skeptics. Now, he would check the Jewish box. And yeah, he's one of these skeptical kind of people, right? You know, and, and, and even as, as the good news is brought to him, in a, in a pretty articulate way, Philip, he's given a little bit more robust presentation than what Andrew gave to Simon, right? He's going through some Old Testament stuff, you know. Uh, hey, hey, Nathaniel, this is the guy that Moses, the law, the prophets wrote about. This is Jesus of Nazareth. He's the son of Joseph. And yet he scoffs at that. Can God reach a heart like that, like a Nathaniel? I mean, you know, do you and I even take time for someone like that? Or do we just skip past them? Oh, let's just, let me look for somebody who's hurting. And at kind of at wit's end because maybe then they'll turn to Jesus. But this person's like antagonistic. They're mean. They shoot down everything I try to show them from God's word. They're skeptical. I don't know if God can reach a heart like that. Maybe that was who you were before God reached you. Maybe you're there today. Well, there's good news for a person like Nathaniel. Philip just said, come and see. You know, he didn't have a very good Romans Road presentation of the gospel message for him or four spiritual laws or evangelism explosion. or He didn't use, he's, I, I don't know how to answer you, Nathaniel. Just come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Jesus finds something to affirm in Nathanael. He doesn't begin with pointing out his flaw, which is pretty evident to us as we're reading John's Gospel. He finds something to affirm in his belief system, in his demeanor, in his personality. Similar to what, uh, what Paul does before the Areopagus on Mars Hill in the book of Acts. You know, he's wandering through this idolatrous landscape where there's statues to every god under the sun. And he's like, oh boy, I've got to talk to these people about Jesus. Where do I start? I feel like going in there and, you know, cracking a whip and overturning some tables. They are so pagan, it's unbelievable. And he, he leads with this. As I was walking through your city and I, I saw these statues, I, I perceived that you are very religious people. And he, he didn't really make a judgment on that, but it, it could be taken as a compliment. And then he, and then he finds a, a tie-in. I saw one statue that you had called To the Unknown God. 
I'm going to make him known to you today. So he affirms them. He finds something within their context to point to Jesus. Tilt that mirror at an angle that's going to blind them with the light of the glory of the one true king. And Jesus affirms Nathanael. And he piques his interest a bit. And Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And then Jesus blows his mind with what I would say is Jesus' first miracle. You know, we always look at chapter 2 and say, Jesus' first miracle was turning the water into wine. I would call this a miracle right here in chapter 1. Jesus said, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. You what? You weren't there. And that got Nathaniel's attention. And he says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And his mind is blown because of this personal connection to Jesus. And all Philip did was invite him. You know, Philip didn't have a fancy presentation of the gospel that was complicated and, and addressed all of his philosophical questions. He just invited him. So just come and see. And Jesus took care of the rest. And he said, Philip, or he said, Nathaniel, I saw you. I knew you. I know your name. I know where you're coming from. And that got Nathaniel's attention. And Jesus said, that was no big deal. More precisely in verse 50, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, is that why you believe? You will see greater things than this. And he said to him, truly I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. If you want to find out where that imagery comes from, it's back in Genesis 28 as in the story of Jacob. Jacob had a dream there in Genesis 28. And it says, He dreamed and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. So even in what Jesus is telling Nathaniel, just get ready. He's proclaiming return from exile, salvation in its full, robust Jewish expectation. No more sin. No more living in bondage. The king, the true king on the throne. God here to be worshipped by his people. His covenant promise is true. The bridge between earth where we live and heaven, the dimension that God occupies, that gap closed. And the ability to come and go into God's presence right now, right here, in the middle of history, that's what you're going to see, Nathaniel. I hope you're getting excited as we're getting into the beginning of this eyewitness account of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. Let's stand together in his presence today and let's thank him for being the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. God, we thank you for the free gift that you bring. 
We thank you for your act of coming to this earth to save us. Thank you that you call us to a life of faith to pursue you even even though we don't know exactly where that will lead. Thank you that you give us a new name, a new identity in you. Whatever label we wore before, you strip away and call us your son, your daughter because of what Jesus did. Thank you for the simple invitation that you extend to just follow you. Thank you that you can call even the skeptic. Thank you that you open eyes to see you as you are. Thank you, Lord, that you show us the way to God and to his promises. And God, I pray that as we who know you are encouraged by these words, maybe challenged to invite a brother or someone from our hometown to come and follow you. Lord, and, and, and also those who do not know you are challenged to surrender to you and to come to you. We pray, God, that we would be a part of John the Baptist's ministry of witnessing of you, of confessing you, of testifying of you, that we'd be like these early disciples that we read about today where we just pursue you and we want to be where you are and we invite others to come along as well. We thank you. We give you thanks and praise. We, we ask you to empower us and embolden us with your Holy Spirit to do all the good things that were prophesied in Isaiah, that were a part of your ministry, Lord Jesus, that we'd be bringing good news to the poor, binding up the broken hearts, bringing justice to the nations, walking in wisdom and understanding. May that be true of us as your children today. We give you thanks now in Jesus' name. Amen.